You are listening to The Mauer Report, a live radio show that ventures into the mysteries of life, as well as the hot topics of the day, either political or business. I want to welcome everybody. And I, hey, first and foremost, before we start, I want to thank everybody for their well wishes because last week, it's kind of funny, I have a doctor on. Uh, last week I went to urgent care because I apparently pulled the muscle from your neck to your shoulder and it decided to get really, really tight to the point where I couldn't turn my head to the side, which made my life rather uncomfortable. Like, uh, because when I finally came to this conclusion, I was an hour away from home and I had to drive home. Now, I don't advise not looking both directions when you're driving, but, well, anyways, we made it back. So, anyways, <laughs> not the safest idea I've ever had. Don't attempt that at home. But anyways, my guest tonight, returning guest, is Karen Gadney. Karen, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing fine, and I'm glad you can still rotate your neck, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, some, some good medicine later and a heating pad and uh, 24 hours off where I just kind of laid there on the heating pad and was a good boy for a change. It actually worked. Because, uh, you know, every, uh, the, the joke is that I never listen to anybody. For once, I did, because well, I didn't really have much choice. <laughs> well, yes, when pain is a good motivator for listening. <laughs> that it is. So, how are you doing tonight, Karen? We've kind of hashed around how I'm doing. I'm hoping you're doing better than I was doing. <laughs> well, yeah, I can turn my neck, and I don't have too many aches and pains. <laughs> But where I live, I'm sure people have heard about all those horrible fires, the Caldor Fire, the Dixie Fire. And so the one thing is I've been embroiled in a lot of smoke for the last month, and that is something that I do not like. And uh, recently, you know, South Lake Tahoe had to really evacuate, and now they're letting them back in, but... Everything is still a little bit dicey in this neck of the woods for fires. I haven't looked in the last few days because, well, well, I'll blame Labor Day for that because I haven't been up on things. Are they getting any closer to having those fires out? Well, they're not progressing as fast as they have, so that is what they consider success. <laughs> well, that's like baseball in the... Uh, and- Fail seven, you know, seventy percent of the time, and you're a baseball star. I don't quite understand that either. But <laughs> so, oh, I guess I should do this before we get jump into where I want to jump into. Uh, Karen is the author of Thirty Years Behind Bars. We talked. We talked. Uh, what was that? Uh, two months ago or so? Yeah, in July we talked. Okay, so for those people who are new or missed that one, you need to go back and listen to the first one. I normally don't like to tell people that. I kind of like to just venture into the conversation, but that first conversation is a great standalone conversation, and you'll understand a lot more about Karen based on that conversation. Tonight we're kind of going down a different rabbit hole, so just bear with us. But I I think you need to catch the first one. Well, you can understand this one where we're going tonight, but the first one adds much deeper context and value. Because we ended that show kind of talking about holistic prison reform, and I felt we didn't nearly give it the the breadth and the the opportunity we should. So let's start there. So kind of lay out what we were talking about in the last few minutes of that show. Well, in the first show, I basically was talking about how I ended up 
as a prison doctor, what I survived, why I stayed 30 years, and why when I left, I made the decision to actually write my book, which starts the day I enter the prison and then the day I leave the prison. And it was very much to get the outside world to see the prison system and the criminal justice system through the eyes of someone oriented to understand and heal versus judge and shame and punish. And that's why I wrote it. Plus, I had to get it off my chest before I forgot all these different things that had happened to me. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, that's a, that's a lot to remember. I don't remember what I had for lunch today, so I'm not sure I could ever pull that off. But it, it, this holistic prison reform kind of makes sense to me, but I, I it doesn't on this. I mean, because I, I think about, like, the people in the armed forces, too. We kind of go through this where they have this routine and have this daily life, and then they're out. And for many of them, on both sides of the coin here, returning to quote-unquote normal life is not easily obtainable because it's not what they're used to and don't they well like for the military people i mean if they leave right after high school they never had a quote-unquote normal life correct and if you're coming out of prison i think you were in a bad place to start with so you don't want to go back there so i think you're, you're right we do do a great disservice to the especially prisoners to not help them understand how to get out of those situations yeah, and it's a little bit complicated when I use the word holistic because it's not only helping them re-enter society. I look at the whole problem, and the whole problem to me is preventing individuals from ending up in the criminal justice system to begin with. And then when they are inside that system, and especially inside a prison, that that experience, you want it structured so they leave the prison less of a risk to society than when they enter, not more of a risk and more angry and more PTSD and more damage. You don't want that, but unfortunately, that's what prisons really were designed for. They were designed to shame and punish, and that does not affect and promote uh, a good behavior change. And then when they leave, the other part of the whole picture is, as a society, if we want them to succeed and also be less of a risk to everyone, we have to, one, take the obstacles down in front of them, and two, we have to actually help support them reintegrate. And I would say that the military has a similar problem where many of the soldiers and vets who come back, they've been traumatized in their own way, just like inmates have been traumatized. And then the system has always been, well, okay, now it's over, get on with your life. And for some can do it. And then there's a huge chunk that truly need support to reintegrate. Yeah. And that's holistic. And I can go into depth of all the different there's those three it's like a three-legged stool you need those three parts any of those parts that is off the system isn't going to succeed well yeah as i say go ahead and keep going because i'm interested like i said i i've 
I've been thinking about that, obviously. That's why I brought you back, because I've been thinking about it. I'm just trying to wrap my head around what buttons to push to help, I don't know, reach out and try to make the effect change. Right. And, you know, we can start with the prevention and go forward, or we can start with how to reintegrate them. And I think that right now, uh, I mean, to me, all three are very important. But I think the reintegration piece is very, let's see, it is broad spectrum for both the vets and the uh, inmate population. And for the inmates, people have to realize and think about this, where if you come into the prison and you are put in a cell and you're stripped of everything that you once, let's say, loved or possessed or made you have an identity, and then you are having people who are in charge of your life and at any time can make you more miserable, uh, affect every system you ever thought of, your mail, your medical care, your legal work, um, your appearance. I mean, everything is affected that you don't have any real control over anymore. And you are in a population many times that is heavily overcrowded because prisons tend to be very overcrowded. And you cannot sleep well because you're always worried about whoever's next to you. You learn to really not trust people because everyone is just trying to be surviving. And you lose contact with family members or you have the guilt over what your family is suffering because it's not only the person inside the prison, family members suffer, children suffer, their spouses suffer, their parents suffer, their siblings suffer, and it's a burden for families to actually keep in contact with someone. Visiting alone in a prison is problematic because you have to jump through a lot of hoops to even get in to visit. And then you're, depending on security levels, not allowed to touch them, not allowed to really give them anything. Um, You can travel for hours to get there, and then the prison at the last minute can say, you know, uh, we have a situation, so you're not coming in today. You could be wearing the wrong clothes because you don't know you're not supposed to wear blue. And they say, no, you're not coming in today, or we don't like the fact that uh, your pants are too tight or your top is a little bit too revealing or whatever it may be. And I don't think people understand how all these small things make tremendous impacts on the population on the inside. And imagine you live like that for years, decades, and many times you're really cut off from the outside world. It's not like you have, you don't have a computer. Um, you don't have easy access to the outside world. Yes, some guys buy a little TV and watch a TV, but prisons can also control what you watch um, and the food you eat affects your health. And eventually, they say, oh, your time is up. 
you're going. And at least in my prison system, which I think occurs in most prison systems, that whole business about what day you leave is a moving target. And that also puts people on edge. Imagine in a prison, you have timekeepers, there's different things you can do that can maybe get you a little time off your sentence, or if you do something bad, adds things to your sentence. So you don't exactly know when you're going to leave. And then every time you go to the parole board, now not every state has a parole board, but Nevada does. You go to the parole board, and let's say you have a 10 to life in prison. That means you have to do a minimum of 10 years. So you do a minimum of 10 years, and then a couple of years later, you go to the parole board, and then they look, and the parole board is also very arbitrary. They look at information, but if you have someone who, let's say, had a bad night, didn't sleep well, didn't eat well, they're like, no, I'm not letting him go. Do a two-year dump, which means, nope, you got to do two more years before you even come back and we reassess you. And let's say then he actually does get paroled. Then you have the dilemma of, all right, now you know you're going to be paroled. You finally get a day. They open up the gates, but many individuals in b- behind bars, so many years have gone by. Maybe family members have died. Maybe family members couldn't handle it anymore or friends. And they, if they leave, then where do they go? Uh, what if they don't have any money? Many institutions when they leave don't always have ID for the individual and imagine how difficult it is to get identification when you don't have anything on you except your prison ID which doesn't count as you know identification and I only talk about these things and they don't really have money and it's like oh man they're on a like a curb somewhere even And then we have systems where they will say, hey, before you get out, you have to uh, pay for two weeks in this hotel before we let you out. And, uh, and I'll take one example because this is uh, an inmate I knew who just got out two years ago. And uh, I, out of curiosity, uh, believe it or not, <laughs> because I was retired and I could do this and I knew him, I picked him up when they dropped him off at um, the parole office place. And I was just stunned by the things he had to jump through. So imagine this is a guy who actually was the type of guy who worked on the inside, um, saved money for 20 years. He saved money. He ended up trying to educate himself as much as possible. And then he leaves, they dump him at uh, the parole place, and the uh, parole officer says, okay, um, you know, $400 of your account goes to this uh, two weeks in a hotel. And oh, by the way, 20 years ago, uh, you had court fines you didn't pay. And... uh, we know you had 5000 in your account. We took 3700 for the fines from 20 years ago. 
Then uh, I took him to the DMV to get a license, and he had the wherewithal to actually call his mother and get his uh, birth certificate and social security card, those sorts of things. He actually had a family member who could figure out how to do that. And so he goes to the DMV, and they pull up his name, and they go, oh, you know, you had a uh, ticket from 20 years ago in Arizona. Mind you, we're in Nevada. In Arizona, and you'll have to pay the $750 that's accrued in the 20 years before we can offer you a DMV card. Okay, now imagine if he didn't have that in his account. One, he wouldn't get a ID. Uh, two, he would already be uh, owing the court's money, and uh, and that means they can all set up warrants for you that they want your money, or if you get in trouble, they toss you back in prison. There are too many things where you have technical violations that can throw you back into a prison system that people have no idea how, to me, uh, how silly it is. As an example, if you're on parole and you have to report to a parole officer uh, every, we're going to say every two weeks or every month, but you cannot uh, make it that day uh, because you have to work or you're sick or something like that and the parole officer has an issue with you, that's a technical parole. They can put you back in prison. Imagine my state, Nevada. I was at the prison commission board, oh, about a year ago, and the attorney general of our state was telling our governor, uh, Governor, 58% of the people that come back and we put back in prison have not done a crime. <laughs> the governor's like, is like, what do you mean? 58% of the people they tossed back in prison had a technical parole violation. Technical parole violation. Like a technical parole is a violation of something like, let's say you have an individual who had problems with alcohol or drugs in the past. And then they uh, do a drug screen on them and they find alcohol in their system. Ah, that's a technical violation. You're going back to prison. They have to have a residence. So let's say they run out of money and then they get tossed out of the residence. So they don't have a residence. Ah, technical violation. Go back to prison. Um, they can't leave the state without taking, talking to, a, I mean, telling a parole officer. I had guys who were working on construction crews in Nevada, in this area, a state line, California, is, you know, just like 20 miles away from us. So if a construction crew goes over to California, and that guy on construction crew didn't know about the state line business, and he's on the wrong side, if that's found out, even though he's on a job, he didn't know he went across the state line. If someone says something, boom. He goes back to prison. And and it just goes on and on with what I consider things that uh, have to be changed. Now, some over time are being changed because they were really pushed by the COVID epidemic uh, and trying to reduce prison populations. And then finally, some people started to say, wow, 
tossing people back into prison for technical violations on a parole don't make sense. If anything, we need to help them uh, in society, not put up these roadblocks. So that was a bit of a diatribe. <laughs> no, that's good. I mean, that's why I brought you back because I, I you have this knowledge that I'm in, deeply interested in, and that's, I mean, that's okay. So that's but the it, yeah. I just wanted to show how I mean that just that one piece how crazy it is because when people talk about recidivism, then you know individuals going back to prison, a lot of the times it's because there are so many obstacles they have to jump over. And so many times they can trip. And if you would explain the violation, a person with average common sense would say, wait a second, uh, I think that should be handled differently than putting him back in prison in terms of the cost and the efficiency and, and also how you destroy these people's lives. Yeah, I was going to say, because well, we're trying to, you know, the reframing is as trying to keep people out and then keep the people that were in right. out. And if 60% of the people that were in just get flagged for, I don't want to say nonsense, but I'll say it for the sake of this conversation. Um, yeah. Reasons. <laughs> things, that are, things that are not truly crimes. They're yeah. basically violations of a parole where an average person could make uh, um, you know, be in the wrong spot at the wrong time or lose their residence or, or something of that sort. So, yeah, I mean, so that, that, that doesn't help obviously. Okay. So what, can, no. what, what kind of, this is going to be a loaded question. I'm sorry, but I've just got to ask. Yeah, sure. So what type of, <laughs> what type of things are we doing while they're in to prevent them from coming back as we're working well, our way back um, through this? Right. And the things that are positive is that you, as a society, people are starting to hear more and more about re-entry programs. Uh, and these are usually nonprofit organizations that were started by people interested in the criminal justice system or prior inmates or religious groups. And as an example, I sit on one in the state of Nevada called the Ridge House. And this is a bit typical of what you'll see in the outside world, where 36 years ago in Nevada, a prison ministry group, Kairos, a religious group, came into the prison, and they wanted to, you know, preach sort of the Christian ethic. And this was part of their religion. And this ministry, prison ministry, and people involved realized very quickly, wow, uh, these guys, when they leave, they have nowhere to go. And uh, these are people who wanted to help. And their first thought was, well, I'll just let them sleep on my couch for a while. Okay, that wasn't really the best choice for them. <laughs> but they realized, wait a second, these people need more help than just a couch to sleep on. They need help with their psychological problems, their substance abuse problems. They truly need a residence, I mean, someplace to live. They need to get a job. They need to get health care. They need help. And this prison ministry group forms something called the Ridge House, where they have different houses, residential properties they own, 
they have house managers and they interview guys in the prison uh, to decide who they want to put in the house. They stay away from individuals who had violent conviction. I mean, things. They, this particular nonprofit is oriented for guys who have a history of substance abuse with no violence. And so those men, when they come out, if they're lucky enough and they can get into the rich house, they have a place to stay. And then they have medical and psych counselors to help them with their problems and also help them get a job and a place to live. And the guy stays there, let's say, oh, you know, six months, nine months to get his feet on the ground so he can ultimately get a place of his own and has a job and has spent enough time outside so he doesn't get sucked back into hopelessness and turn to a drug to cope. And I sit on the board for the Ridge House and have since I came out. And that's an example of a reentry program that is really uh, effective. But they have 60 medical beds, excuse me, 60 residential beds in their houses all together, and they service about 220 outpatients, you know, who come as outpatients. But uh, the last count I heard in the prison, they had 300 guys who actually, and this is out of my, let's say, uh, between my prison and my camp, maybe there were 2,000, and they had 3,000 guys still in prison who had been paroled, but... They had, they had to have enough money saved up to spend two weeks on a hotel because the prison doesn't want to just stick them on a curb. Now, mind you, it's a little, what should I say, smoke and mirrors because two weeks in a hotel and they run out of money, they're going to be on a curb. And so an inmate somehow has to get $400 and then accepted into a hotel in Reno uh, before they can even parole, even though legally the prison is just keeping these people because they don't want to just stick them on a curb. So that's a problem. Um, I was going to say, that sounds like, yeah, okay, you've temporarily, you've moved, you've moved the problem back two weeks by doing that. That's all you've done. Right. That, that's, 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 all, that's all you've done because the prison politically doesn't want to be said wow, you just dumped him on a curb. They can say, well, we released him and they went to a residence. They just don't say how long <laughs> going to stay there. So, I mean, see, all of this is, to me, bothers me because I know the game. And uh, the game is not set up for individuals to do well. Um, <clears throat> and... And unfortunately, housing is very, very expensive in different parts of the country. And Reno right now in Nevada is very expensive because of the Tesla plant and all the people who work there who are looking for housing, which, of course, supply and demand, it increases the cost of living. So I want to circle back to the what you, you said Ridge Project. It's called the Ridge House. Ridge the House. Ridge House. That's the name of the nonprofit organization. Yeah. Uh, how do they do it? 
keeping people i mean it sounds like a great program but how how's their outcomes are they doing better than average when it comes to these repeating? oh yeah they do they do significantly better than average and in fact uh, i like this underdog story it just shows something where um years ago it, and we there uh, there houses for men and there's a house uh, for females too and one of the women many years ago had problems with the law and substance abuse and she went into the bridge house and truly truly turned around her life and then decided to get a degree in social work a degree in substance abuse climbed up different nonprofit corporations in taking care of you know people like herself <laughs> and now she is the ceo of the ridge house and her name is danny tillman and she is highly effective as a leader and highly passionate but she is an example of what can happen if you actually help someone instead of put up obstacles and they never have a chance because she's now a CEO of a nonprofit organization. And a lot of times you'll find re-entry programs where the people who are, because nonprofits take a lot of work in terms of grant money and funding and uh, trying to make payroll and everything else for its people. They are driven by a real need to be part of the solution. And it's because they come out of that world or they knew people world or somehow they were affected. And that's where you see a lot of the nonprofit organizations. Yeah. They have, you know, they have people involved who this, this is what resonates with them and they're willing to volunteer their time and, and give money and et cetera. So this is a technical question. You may not know the answer to this, but it popped up in my chat room, and yeah. I'm going to ask you because, well, it's a good question. I don't know the answer, so I'm going to ask you. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. Uh, say a person is being paroled. Can they go to another state and have their parole moved to that other state to be with a family member or another person like that? What happens is they can ask for parole to another state. Now, the other state has to accept them, and other states don't like to accept other people's problems and prisoners. Now, if you have, let's say, a family in the other state, and that family is, let's say, pushing the levers to say, hey, let him parole here, and we have a place for him, and we'll help him, and they push those buttons, yes, states can parole to a different state, but you can't dump on another state. So the other state has to accept. And imagine how many states really want to accept someone else's problems. They yeah. need someone pushing from the inside. It sounds like uh, another $400 for a two-week hotel stay. Problem. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably, yeah, I don't know the exact, how much money they have to give to whoever to, uh, to make that happen, but you can understand the logistics <laughs> there, right? Yeah, Otherwise, that's... in fact, th- this is embarrassing, but this is what, when I first, this is back in the 80s, when I, in 87, when I went, you know, got into the prison, and then the inmates would say, well, I'm leaving prison and I've got my, gate money. And I, I would say, well, what's that? Well, the money I get at the gate, I get 28 bucks. And I'm like, 
thinking to myself, okay, what is $28 going to do and help someone? In the old days, it was the price of a ticket to California on a bus from Reno, Nevada. Hmm. See what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, right, right. (laughs) And it was just trying to shift it over, right. And these were guys who weren't on parole. These were, they expired their sentence, right? Their sentence ran out. And when they walked out, in those days, this gate money was uh, 28 bucks, And I found out it was the price of a bus ticket to California. <laughs> and then you get there with <laughs> nothing, but okay. Uh- <laughs> and then, of course, there's nothing there, you know, for that, but there you go. But, of course, a lot of guys took the $28 and went to a bar and got drunk. I mean, there's that, too, right? So Yeah, I, I just say, there's a lot of possible, I, I, I guess... I'm trying to figure out what you do with twenty eight dollars to see a positive return at this point, or even two hundred and eighty dollars yeah, right, today. I as I put it more in the modern, like <laughs> yeah. I you kind of say right, and go, right. you're well, maybe one of my smart listeners out there has something I could do positive with two hundred and eighty bucks, but we'll circle back to that if I see something good. Um <laughs> before we turn the page and get out of this and get into the prevention, I've got another question here. Is there a right. country or state that has figured out Big air quotes there. Prison reform in an effective way forward. If so, where and how? Yeah, that's that's a that's a that's a good question, and uh, I would say when I did a lot of reading on reentry programs, probably believe it or not, Connecticut has uh, the most involved reentry programs in different nonprofits, and they're tied together, but. When I read this, it was because they've been doing it for 120 years. And I don't exactly know how it all started, uh, but when you have a 120-year track record of coordinating different organizations and nonprofits and pulling in the state, and it's and plus you have a very tiny state, I mean, in terms of land mass, then they probably do it the most effectively. And, of course, the South does it the worst because you're really looking at the criminal justice system as just another long arm of slavery and Jim Crow laws and uh, not caring at all what happens to their prison populations. You read my mind. I was so the ask East... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know the eastern. I mean, the eastern states are more pro, they're they're more progressive, but the South is the worst. And if you had to take a state and take a look at what they're doing with reentry and nonprofits, I would say look at Connecticut. So that that's interesting. I, I would have never guessed Connecticut, but I guess I never had thought about it either until we started talking about it. So. Right. And, you know, California has uh, different reentry things that have been started by inmates who have uh, had the value of education and have uh, created like the anti-recidivism coalition and things like that. But in California, you have a huge prison population, even though, you know, it certainly has decreased because they let a lot of people out who had lesser crimes with the COVID business. And of course, states now are battling, okay, we let them out. Do we have to 
bring them back in. You see what I mean? <laughs> we let them out like sort of on furloughs or whatever. Like, should we bring them back in? So that that I can't imagine how crazy that would be for states. But something to keep an eye on for sure. Okay, so before we, before we get too far into this craziness that is today, let's talk about preventing people from going to the prison in the first place. Um, it sounds simple, yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> but that's not. Well, well, there's, well, no, it's it's not. But some of the things that I like to talk about with prevention is number one, you look at the young people who are at the highest risk of ending up in prison, and usually those are the children of people that come out of families where parents are in prison or their relatives are all in prison. So they grow up in that milieu. And for me, with prevention, you look at the highest risk kids, and then you uh, start with things like true mentoring programs, where you have decent adult role models where, and you can have this through the Big Brother, Big Sister Organization, uh, the Boys and Girls Clubs, but I really think society, to me, I look at it like a medical problem. Where do you get the most bang for the buck with prevention? And I like to start with the kids at risk. And my husband and I mentored five kids, uh, four who had parent in prison and one who had just no father. But um, the three oldest are college graduates now. And the other two are works in progress. So mentoring's a big piece for the kids. The next piece is you have to look at what puts people at risk for spinning out in a prison. And that means you look at mental illness and mental illness, which many people then turn to self-medicate with drugs where they become addicted. And in other countries, and I'll use Germany as an example, Germany has a, a health system where they have a large safety net and they help individuals with drug addiction and mental illness. And they have a whole different way of looking at prisons. And in fact, their prison population is one-tenth our population per capita, one-tenth and they have 50% less violence in their country. And, you know, just imagine what it would be like if we actually, in our country, could reduce our prison population by 90%, <laughs> and, it, and we had 50% less violence in our country. I mean, that would be extraordinary. But the big thing that Germany and countries like Germany have is a huge social support and medical system, which we do not have. And as a physician, I think that a dollar spent on the front end will be more effective than spending $10 on the tail end of the problem, which, and it's not only the money, it's the havoc people can cause to other people in terms of killing and maiming and destroying other people's lives. So, that's a piece of the prevention if you factor in also things that have to, society has to tackle as a whole 
is the inner cities where you have a tremendous amount of violence and very little opportunities. It's like, what do you do with that? Because when people talk about homicides and violence and the black, the African-American race is being uh, responsible for so many homicides, they always fail to mention that it's usually black-on-black homicide because they are in poor areas with little resources and little options except for surviving and being controlled by the whole drug arena and making money. That has to change. Also, the laws that create felony sentences for people that mark them forever. And this would be where you have the police and the law enforcement where they pick someone up, they charge him with something, and that they have to pay a fine. Okay, then the person, because they're poor, can't pay, doesn't have the ability to pay the fine. And, uh, or they take away their license. And because they don't have money or other means of transportation, they drive without a license, then they get picked up without a license, another fine, and then they end up in jail. And many times when they end up in jail, it has been because they have been profiled and they find something in their car or whatever it is, or they're just in the wrong place at the wrong time, And if they put you in jail, it's not that you are charged. I mean, it's not that you are guilty at that moment, but they basically tell that person who doesn't know the law that, hey, you know, if you just say you did this, then you can get out of the jail and then come back at another time. Now, if you say, well, I'm innocent, well, okay, you're going to have to do that in court And then you sit there for potentially months and months. And you can't do that if you have families and little kids at home and this and that. And they plead to something that actually puts a mark on them as a felon. And then every time they get stuck with that, that comes up on records and that leads to more problems for them. Then they can't get a job. And it's this snowball effect that really can be prevented at different levels. They also have changed the laws where judges would have to give minimum mandatory sentences. As an example, in the past, judges could use discretion on certain charges. Uh, An example would be like this. You have an 18-year-old boy, and uh, he's stupid and horny, and he has sex with a 16-year-old girl who looks older than him. And her father finds out, and he puts charges against the 18-year-old. And the 16-year-old girl, even though she says, no, this was consensual and blah, 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 It goes in front of a judge, and because of 
mandatory minimum sentences an adult having sex with a minor, uh, like in Nevada, as an example, can get 10 to life in prison. And the judge looks at that type of case and goes, man, I don't want to give this 18-year-old 10 years to life in prison and a sex felony charge for the rest of his life that will follow him. I don't want to do it. But because of mandatory minimums, I have to. And I saw a number of these young guys in prison that I took care of for 10 years because at 18 or like, you know, they they did something stupid like that. And most people don't understand mandatory minimum sentencing where a judge can't think about it. There's There's a real difference when people think about sexual predators when it's an 18-year-old boy with a girl who looks older than him but who isn't versus someone who is a true predator. But they're treated the same. And that record follows them forever. Yeah, and then you're 28 and have never, again, that falls back to the, the conversation we started with. If you're 28 and have never had any of that adult life, so to speak, and now you've got a, a... a tag a record with you and no real world experience and go go figure it out right and it and it's very problematic for them because as a sex felon and they have a life parole life parole okay life that means if they want to move anywhere oh my god they can't be within x amount of miles of a school x miles amount of park imagine you buy a nice house and they build a school within distance of you (laughs) if you stay that's a violation of your parole and uh, you get thrown back into prison so that means you have to sell your house and figure out somewhere else to live i mean that's i mean there's a lot of crazy things with the law that um and and also the dilemma for states where if you leave the prison and, you know, here you are, an ex-felon, you leave the prison. Different states, because and that's the other thing, every state is doing something different. But in many states, uh, if you're an ex-felon, you can't qualify for a uh, scholarship. You know, let's say a community scholarship says, okay, if you're poor, like in my area, if you poor and un- learn, earn under this, you could qualify for a scholarship. Well, not if you're not if you have an ex felon after your your name. Um, public assistance, nope. Food stamps, nope. And so there's a lot of things that are cut off from them because they did time in prison. And uh, at least according to the Bureau of Justice or one of those big organizations I read. One out of three adult black males in this country have a felony record. One out of three. I mean, that's that's, that's incredible. That's, I mean, it, it's hard to even wrap your mind around. One out of three. And that's because it's so easy to get uh, wrapped up in the legal system and have that felony stamp on you that you can't get rid of. And, of course, then that just spins into more and more problems. 
if you can't get assistance, you can't get a scholarship, you can't get a decent job. And of course, there are certain things out there where they're trying to help people. But when I talk about holistic reform, a lot of these ways and laws and things we do, we have to step back and rethink. Is this really, um, does this really make sense? And and I would say it's a real problem with sentencing because I really think, and I understand why they did that, because, you know, they want supposedly everybody's treated the same. But I really think in, just like in medicine, things should be personalized. Like what is best for this person in the context of society and what's best for society? Taking an 18-year-old boy who did something stupid and putting a, a felon mark on him for the rest of his life does not benefit him and it absolutely doesn't benefit society. You've told me a lot of things, so things that like don't that. make sense. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, well, <laughs> and, and the more you get in the weeds, you, you're you like, oh, this is, this is wild. This is wild. Uh, and also the whole business about how many states allow a person with a felony record to vote. I mean, there are many states, if you have a felony record, you cannot vote. And that also takes people out of the mix who have any say-so. And to me, you strip people and make it harder and harder for them. They are not in any way going to be beholden to society or other people. And they have no say with a vote. And um, I, I remember reading uh, Florida in particular. You know their their you know their legislative laws. That, you know what was it last year said? Okay, we're going to actually allow felons to vote. And then they passed a law that then there are people who didn't like that because they're worried that, you know, you have people that have a voice who are, there's a huge prison population down there, that they said, okay, if these people have any fines, and many of them have outstanding fines, then they can't vote, which is actually like a poll tax. Like if you're rich, well, you can pay stuff, but if you're poor, too bad. Even though the law says you can vote, you've got fines that are still in the rears, so you can't vote. I mean, that type of stuff is going on all over the place. I just... <laughs> I'm glad I had you back. I knew I was going to be, but I, I just, you know... I, I, <laughs> I don't want to say I don't want to say I'm dumbfounded, but I'm just taking a moment here to collect some thoughts because it's kind of all over the place at this moment. So, um. right, yeah, <laughs> and, and see that's that thing about I mean the holistic prison reform is there are so many things that have to be healed. I mean, and people are trying to do a little of this, a little of that, but to me, if you really want to have reform, you have to actually address all of it. It's like medicine, all right. The guy has a heart attack, and you might put a stint in, but then you throw him out and feed him just cheeseburgers and stress him out to the max. <laughs> He's going to bounce right back in. 
that's you know that doesn't make sense either. So. Yeah, I was gonna say it's it. You're right though. It, there's not a, obviously there's not an easy solution because if there was, I would no, like to believe we no, would do there, it. There's not an easy one. Yeah, and but the, but I this is the first time that you know because I've been in the mix for like over thirty years. It's only been recently that people have finally started thinking and and realizing. Wait a second. Uh, we're the mass incarcerator of the world. We are not safer, and this is a tremendous amount of money, and we are destroying people. You know, and it's taken, I mean, to me, I saw this you know, back in the 80s. I mean, now it's 2021. I mean, and... Uh, and you know, and it's you have these little fits and starts, and then all what you need is uh, the typical sort of thing. Remember Willie Horton that that uh, Dukakis got uh, sort of screwed as a presidential candidate. And I don't know if you remember the story, but there was a black inmate who was uh, let out early or on a furlough, and uh, then he did a bad crime. And this politician, it was actually governor, it destroyed his career, and he was going for a presidential bid, but just one incident. And the thing is, there'll always be some risk involved when you uh, change systems, and then whoever wants to destroy a change will just point to one bad actor. And I... And I worry about the United States because it's so attached to social media and quick news and the thing that creates people to pay attention is some bad thing and that's it without looking at the whole picture and say okay wait a second we did let one guy out that uh, created some problems but let's say we also let go a hundred guys who we don't hear about, but hey, they're back in the community working, their families are better off, uh, they're paying taxes, uh, we don't have all this uh, restaurants and businesses that don't have employees that they could staff. They don't talk about that. You know, you can have a hundred that work out well, one work out badly, and then it's like, why are we, you know, they just, people act emotionally instead of looking at things analytically or logically or look at the look at the pros and the cons and and I think that um, it's my hope that there'll be more and more discussions and more and more things tried and then looking at programs that really do things well a lot of the reentry programs, since they're nonprofits, it's very hard for them to get big enough, you know. So it really benefits a small amount of people. But states, in my view, need to take this on, where they look at it as a priority, not like build another prison or give private contracts to private prisons because private prisons, all of their income is generated by filling beds. 
So they want incarceration to be high. Their lobbyists uh, will push laws where they will fill more beds. And right now, the private prison companies are very much getting into immigration uh, people coming in and having, you know, prisons set up for them. They're interested in beds because they get paid for beds. And I think that's dangerous in our country. Yeah, I was going to say, when you have a vested interest in uh, keeping people in, and then you can lobby to keep them in, I see a very bad right. cycle of events happening there. Right, I I see that as well. And plus, I've experienced two private companies in our own state which actually failed miserably. And, um, and what I saw was they would develop contracts where they would say, oh, look, we'll do X amount of uh, money per inmate. And on paper, it looked good for, uh, you know, legislators, but the contract was also worried, and if this inmate costs more than such and such, we'll give him back to the state. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, imagine in the medical world, right? Uh, you deny enough stuff, you can reduce your budget. But when something really gets expensive, it bounces back to us. All right, that that does not benefit a state. But I saw that that uh, contract Mickey Mouse world. <laughs> that that that's more. That's just about as mind blowing as anything else you said tonight. Which, well, anyways. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> And also, they, you know, Ohio had real problems with their private prisons because when the inmates escaped, then the private company turned to the state, well, well, that's your problem, they escaped. <laughs> but it was because they cut back on their custody staff to reduce the cost, right? So it's this, this is typical of companies, they want to make money, so they offload problems back to the state, right? Well, Karen... I, I want to say I had a. I'm glad that I brought you back to make my head hurt more. Um, so I appreciate. It. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thanks for your first-hand knowledge because that's important. Well, it's it's just something to think about, and, and if people are interested in holistic reform, they, they actually think about that concept of prevention. But how can we prevent people from ending up going to prison? and then healing them on the inside, and how do we support them when they leave, and realize as well, every state is different. Every state is different. And uh, no one's got it all right. And uh, and then there are certain states that have it really wrong. <laughs> all right, Karen. Thanks. Have a good evening. Okay. Thanks, Jim. Bye. Thank you for listening Bye. to this episode of The Mail Report. Stay tuned for details on saving money at the Duck Pond Shop. I hope you enjoyed this report. Please subscribe so that you can join us again. And if you appreciate the show, leave us some stars or a review. For more notes from this show or other great shows, check out Mallard.com. A reminder, the views and opinions of the show are those of the host and guest and do not represent any sponsors, affiliates, or any other partners of the Mallard Report. Now for your money-saving tip. Promo code Mallard at checkout of DuckPondShop.com where you can get your t-shirt, coffee mug, and other great products. That's promo code Mallard at checkout, duckpawnshop.com. Until next week, stay safe and keep whacking.
In a world infatuated with comic fandom comes a show to help us remember the talents that have inspired us. Whoa, 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 cut. Oh, come on. It wasn't come that on. bad. It's a bit dramatic. Let's just tell them about the show, guys. We are the Canned Air Podcast. Join us weekly for a comedic trip through pop culture. We also welcome some cool comic creators, as well as some of the voice and screen actors that help shape your childhood. Find us on cannedairpodcast.com and on the Evergreen Podcast Network.